An old book. A book about witchcraft. You're listening to the Whitewood Podcast, a show about mystery schools, the occult, and witchcraft. Would you like to have a look around? Why have you come to Whitewood? Well, because I'm interested in witchcraft. I'm your host, Nate. Come with us as we delve into the history, techniques, and backstories of these traditions and the people who practice them. Welcome back to the Whitewood Podcast. My name is Nate Driscoll, and this week we are going to be talking about magical practice. Uh, what is that term? What is magical practice? What is uh, uh, some other terms for it? Some some relating ideas to a magical practice? How does that relate to like a spiritual practice, for example? We're going to talk about some examples, like uh, what kinds of things might find their way into that description term. If you know you heard a friend or a loved one say, oh yeah, I've added this into my magical practice. You know, what, is, what does that mean? We're also going to look at some different terms for the practitioner, for the individual who practices. And by no means is this uh, episode going to even remotely act as a uh, complete explanation of everything. I don't think that um, I don't think a magical practice can be summarized in an episode or a series of episodes. I think that on one hand, it's just such a highly personal experience that it's going to differ so much from person to person that there's no way for us to really get into it. But then on top of that, um, it is a very wide topic. And so I think it would be unreasonable for us to set any kind of expectation that this is going to cover everything that that talks about. But we are going to try to at least add some definitions, some ideas, some kind of flesh out some ideas so that maybe if you're in the starting position uh, and you're kind of curious of what a magical practice is, maybe this could offer an opportunity to uh, kind of understand what your friend was talking about when they were talking about their magical practice. Uh, or maybe uh, you've been around for a while and this just kind of helps you to flesh out some ideas and, um, oh, hey, you know, I could add that. I didn't think about adding that aspect to it or or maybe it just kind of confirms some of the stuff you've already been doing and you can hear somebody else talk about some stuff that uh, maybe you had been incorporating already. You know, So there's a lot of different reasons why we would talk about it. Uh, for me and for the show, I think the most important reason is just to, with a, several of these first episodes, we wanted to make sure that we, while still touching on some of the in-depth, that we offer a starting point. Some, some base information in order to make sure that everybody that's listening has an opportunity, should they choose to, to listen through these episodes and be kind of on the, the same footing, to set a foundation before we try to build a building on top of it, if that kind of makes sense. So what is a magical practice? Well, a magical practice is similar to like a religious practice. Um, when we differentiate, I, I would say that everyone who is referring to their magical practice is referring to their spiritual or religious practice. Um, the thing that separates us from that is that we're specifying that the religious or spiritual practice that we're partaking in is one of the magical traditions. So that would be things like Thelema, Wicca, Golden Dawn, maybe Voodoo, uh, maybe paganism, 
um, maybe a specific sect of paganism like Greek or Norse paganism, maybe just a broad sense of, you know, many different concepts coming together. Just like any other community, we also have agnostics where they um, are less specific on their definitions of, you know, what types of divine things they're working with. Uh, and so that might come as kind of a uh, more agnostic magical practice. Something to keep in mind with the occult is that while it is spiritual in nature, it doesn't necessarily require that um, you ever work directly with deities in order to have that kind of spiritual growth. And so um, a magical practice might also include uh, atheistic practice. There are many individuals, and sometimes people um, will spend some time with those perspectives, spend a couple of years, maybe a great deal of time uh, being an atheist in the magical community. Um, happens. I myself um, experimented pretty heavily with atheism for a period of time. Uh, it, it, was, it was accomplishing what I needed it to in the phase that I was in. And then as uh, I had certain experiences that uh, made me question some of that atheism, that's when I kind of opened up the door to more um, divinity-based practices, more like God-based practices or goddess-based practices or those kinds of things, right? So you will see, uh, and it is valid to have individuals who might not believe in a specific higher power, or maybe they believe in those higher powers and they just don't choose to align with them. Maybe they're more of an individual and they don't want to be part of that type of a relationship. That's okay too, you know? Um, so you're going to find that magical practice comes in a lot of varieties and probably more varieties than just religious and spiritual practices might. But when, when an individual who's practicing magic um, refers to their magical practice, what they're kind of saying is their religious practice or their spiritual beliefs. Um, so to kind of unpack that, a religious practice. I found a definition online. The definition is that uh, religious practice means a term including practices and observation uh, observances, such as attending worship services, wearing religious garb or symbols, praying at prescribed times, displaying religious objects, adhering to certain dietary rules, refraining from certain activities, and proselytizing, etc. And a spiritual practice, a definition that I found, was a spiritual practice or spiritual discipline. And I think it's really interesting that they offered the alternative of discipline because I think a magical discipline is a very interesting concept. So they say a spiritual practice or spiritual discipline, often including spiritual exercises, is the regular or full-time performance of actions and activities undertaken for the purpose of inducing spiritual experiences and cultivating spiritual development. So personally, I really liked that one. Um, and then they, they went on to uh, expand that a little bit, and they said a common metaphor used in the spiritual traditions of the world's great religions, religions, sorry, is that of walking a path. And I would, I would agree with that. There are definitely people who, uh, myself included, will kind of refer to it metaphorically as a path because it feels like you're going somewhere, and it also feels like someone else has already walked here. It kind of does feel like a path. Now whether your specific practices take you down a road where it feels like you're hiking on a trail in the backwoods or whether that feels like it's a paved, um, you know, paved ornate road going down some 
some formalized place. That's kind of up to your own personal interpretations, but I, I like that symbol of walking a path. Um, I think another thing that is an analogy that works really well is the symbol of a mountain, you know, to, to ascend to a peak, to because it is a lot of work, but there is like a defined goal. And I, and I like some of the imagery that's brought up with uh, certain uh, spiritual mentors throughout the ages with a mountain. Uh, for example, Lao Tzu um, wrote in, I believe it was, was it the Tao Te Ching? I believe it's the Tao Te Ching, and it might not be. I might be incorrect there. That might There are a couple of Eastern works. Um, but I know it was Lao Tzu that said it, and I can't remember if he was, in fact, the author of the Tao Te Ching. Um, but the quote is, There are many paths to the top of the mountain, but the view of the moon while sitting on the peak is the same. And so I've always really enjoyed that particular metaphor being used for spiritual traditions, is this idea that there's one great mountain of spirituality, and there's many, many paths to that. And one of those paths might be a lot more paved than others. And one of them might be more difficult than others. And one of them might take you through a little bit more sightseeing of a route. Maybe maybe it's not as direct. But you get to spend some time at the waterfall at the base and also see this, you know, beautiful cliffside. And also see, you know, so there's there's something to be said about how the metaphor of, a, of climbing a mountain uh aligns pretty well with that as well as following paths because I do think that there's a lot of options and um, but that it, there is some form of forward progress and the farther that I get into these situations the more that I recognize that I am not the first person here and that um, there are others who have also you know experienced some of the things I'm experiencing grown in some of the ways that I'm growing and care about some of these things that I care about. And so that can be a very uh, powerful experience to recognize that for a path to exist, someone must have walked here, you know? Um, so I like, I like that idea and that metaphor, but let's kind of unpackage that a little bit. Okay. So a religious practice, religious practices, uh, practices, observances, worship services, wearing religious garb, praying at prescribed times, displaying religious objects, and yada, yada, yada. Um, when we're talking about a magical practice, we're talking about exactly those things. We're just talking about them within the context of one of the magical traditions. So we're talking about those in the context of Wicca, in the context of Thelema, in the context of Voodoo, in the context of whichever particular tradition you find yourself in, or whatever mix you make up by saying, hey, you know, this is working for me. I really was inspired by this, but maybe that whole religion is not for me. Maybe, you know, maybe just this one practice I'd like to play around with and go look at some other things from some other buckets. That's always a good practice to do as well. But basically, we're talking about the things that you do in order to grow and enhance your life in a spiritual fashion. When we're talking about spiritual fashions, we're talking about things that are adding meaning and depth into your life, your, the way that you perceive the world. It shifts your philosophy, the way that you think about problems, the way that you approach things, the way that you treat those around you. It also is going to come in heavily into how you go about your moral dealings with those around you. So uh, if you're upset at the supermarket, for example, 
and there's, I don't know, let's use the example of a Karen. There's some Karen, and she's being a total Karen about everything. Oh, come on, Karen, get it together, you know? <laughs> and um, how you choose to react to that based on, you know, who you are as a person, what ethical guidelines you choose to hold yourself to, which standards you decide to measure yourself by. These kind of things might enhance your life in order to... Uh, have some philosophical or uh, religious or spiritual backing. And just like you can find those kind of things in yoga, and just like you can find those kind of things in church, and just like you can find those kind of things in reading, you know, formalized religion scriptures, or, um, you know, the, the many, many various religions that are out there, the magical traditions are along the same line you can you can find those kind of things there and and for me for myself it's been a very profound and beautiful experience to be uh to be doing that it's it's definitely changed my life um so a magical practice is a religious practice um someone that uh, practices that you know there's a lot of terms that i see floating around now we have a weird pr problem in the magical traditions that i don't think I guess, I guess everyone has a PR problem nowadays. There's always some person out there on the internet judging something, acting like a jerk. But specifically in, in the magical traditions, we get a lot of individuals who see it on TV, see it in a video game, see it in a book. It's a fictionalized version of it. It's not a, a very accurate version of it. And they get excited and inspired by that. Uh, all of that's good, you know. But then they might bring some of that fantasy element into their actual practice. And so, from time to time, we, we do get individuals who are um, playing a little bit more of a game of pretend than they are actively practicing a spiritual path. And it, it can be difficult to... Uh, to have those types around. Sometimes they can be the source of a lot of negativity and um, emotional trauma and uh, toxic behaviors within a group. Um, sometimes one of the effects that they might have is that uh, they might go out and be very loud about how their perception of it is wrapped into this. And then when some of us uh, go out and have a little bit more of a grounded experience, we might be treated in a specific way because they they might think that we fall in line with that ideal. By no means do I mean that everyone that was inspired to take a look at these magical traditions through media acts like this, but there is kind of a thing that can happen where uh, we do get some of them, probably a little bit more than other religions, because I don't think that there is a cool sexy side on you know some netflix special about i don't know judaism you don't really there's not like a cool sexy side to it so you don't get like a like a oh yeah i watched this cool tv show and i really want to be just like that character and so i'm going to go to uh you know the, to the mosque or the you know whatever organized religion you have um whereas we do kind of have that that cool sexy side to it in media and so uh, sometimes we do get that. Uh, so sometimes these terms are going to be things that I hear out and about a lot. And sometimes these are terms that, you know, maybe maybe I don't hear a lot. Maybe, 
maybe uh, this is kind of like a silly thing that most people don't really use those kind of that kind of language, that kind of term for a person who practices or for their practice. So um, I, I would just say, in general, try to be real about what's happening to you. You know, try to be as genuine and honest. You don't have any make-believe metric to live up to. So you don't have to uh, show up, you know, let's say you have like a weekly gathering and everyone's like, hey, how was your week? You don't have to show up and put on airs and pretend that anything that didn't happen happened. You don't have to, you know, convince yourself of, of anything because you have nothing to prove. You, you know, it's all about growth. It's all about you being genuine about yourself and how you go about it. So, um, you know, if you're one of those people, don't don't feel like you have to come into the to the coven or, or whatever and be like, oh, yeah, well, I summoned my grandmother and she told me that I'm a 15th generational vampire from the werewolf region of, you know, you don't have to act like that. It's okay. It's okay to be, it is interesting to be a human being and a regular person and uh, embrace it. There's a lot of really important, meaningful things that you can find in the occult um, from, you know, just being real, being real about it you know so hopefully that's not um a touchy point for anyone if if it was a touchy point or if you just have more to tell me about that idea maybe you've met someone that's like that and you want to you know let me know or maybe uh you fall into that category and you're offended and you're mad at me and you want to uh you know vent that it's all good anybody that wants to reach out to me for any reason at all you can reach me at nate at whitewoodpodcast.com and I do actually read the emails, and I do actually go through, and as time permits, I do try to respond. So, uh, yeah, let me know. Let me know your thoughts on that. So some of the types of people, uh, the terms of people that you'll hear running around for someone who practices magic. Uh, the first one I wrote down was practitioner. And a practitioner, it's a very blanket statement. And it's also one of those statements where I haven't said too much about what we're practicing. <laughs> and so um, it's it gets used a lot because we can casually kind of say that in a Walmart. You know, I can be walking with my buddy. We just are about to head back to the house in order to do some ritual or rite. And uh, we're like, oh, fuck, we're totally out of, I don't know, insert random thing that you can find at the grocery store that you need for your ritual. doesn't matter what it is. And, okay, well, we'll go to the grocery store. You want to come along for the ride? Yeah, sure. And then we get to talking because, you know, we have similar hobbies and interests. And so you connect with people like you would anywhere else. And you're talking back and forth. And then you're suddenly in the Walmart. And you're walking through. And, you know, there's people around. And you're like, yeah, no, Dave's a practitioner. He's kind of a cool guy. I really like him and blah, 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 you know. Uh, it's one of those words where if someone were listening to your whole conversation, they're going to piece it together. But it's also... Uh, not so overtly, like, obvious. So I do hear people use practitioner a lot. It also doesn't label someone as anything. It doesn't... Uh, so it's it's such a, a gray term that means so many things that, like, if someone was an alchemist, and if someone was a witch, and if someone was more down, like, the Golden Dawn route of, like, magician work, or if someone was, you know... It's it's calling someone a practitioner is not labeling them into one single box. It's just kind of an umbrella term. It can mean they practice. They practice magic in general. It could be any of the different forms and any of the different ideas. It doesn't matter, right? 
And that's kind of the beauty of that word. And so I do hear it a lot. I do say it a lot. Um, I will sometimes refer to myself as a practitioner. Um, I used another one in that uh, description that I think it warrants a response is witch. You know, what is a witch? Well, anyone that practices witchcraft could self-identify as a witch. Uh, it is not gender specific, and it is a common term for individuals that are members of Wicca to refer to themselves as witches. Both men and women are witches. Um, there is not a lot of people out there referring to themselves as wizards. I don't see that a lot. So I know there's, um, you know, like, uh, if you look at, like, media, a lot of times they'll say, oh, it's a witch and a wizard, um, or a witch and a warlock, or, you know, whatever. Generally speaking, I don't hear warlock, I don't hear uh, wizard. Those seem to be kind of on the sillier side of terms that, like, people probably don't self-identify with. Uh, as far as witch, I do hear both men and women refer to themselves as witches, especially if they are in line with that Wiccan tradition. Um, you might um, you might self-identify with like specifics, like maybe maybe you only do alchemy, so maybe you might refer to your practice to yourself as a practitioner. You might say, "I'm an alchemist." You know that might be something similar to witch, where it's you know gender neutral and um, you know just offers a. And a, a quick description into what style of magic you're into. Um, there's an interesting one, magician. A magician is a very interesting term because uh, most magical traditions do not like to use the word magician because of its association with illusionary arts. When we talk about like an illusionist going on stage and doing a trick where he makes the lion disappear or he makes the deck of cards explode or you know whatever the thing is you know whatever your cool awesome illusionary trick is now i've never met someone who is both an illusionist and an occultist i've never met uh, anyone in that category however i'm sure now that i've put it out into the universe that i've never met anyone like that i'm sure six or seven of them are going to pop out of the woodworks because that seems to be the gist of it is that once you say something doesn't exist, the universe tries to rub it in your face how wrong you are. <laughs> so uh, I'm not sure. I, I'm sure there are some out there. I would never limit individuals, but generally speaking, illusionists tend to be a different type of person. Uh, and it's a separate community. And most illusionists will refer to themselves as a magician, right? Um, it's a common interpretation of the word magician in the non-occult world. And because of that, most magical communities avoid the word magician because it has a connotation with tricks and illusions and, you know, cards and pulling a rabbit out of a hat and all of those kinds of things, right? Um, this is not the case for Thelemites and for Golden Dawn members. They... I, the Golden Dawn specifically was kind of founded in a time where there wasn't as much connotation to that. And so they will sometimes call themselves magicians. In fact, that might be their go-to term. Um, they are not saying that they are illusionists, but uh, it's a term that describes a person who does magic, magician, right? And so uh, it is a term that gets used. Um, however... You will find that in some communities, that's the go-to term, um, especially when you're looking at the styles of magic that 
are of more Western origin, originating from around the 19th and 20th century. So if you're looking at like the 1800s, the 1900s, you're going to find that the go-to term uh, in a lot of those types of communities is in fact magician. Uh, whereas if you're looking at uh, things like um, Wicca, where it was highly popularized a little bit later, it was highly popularized after you know Gardner came out in what the 70s, I believe, was it the 70s, the 50s, but well into you know a different age. Um, because of that, uh, they were a little bit more aware of the PR problem that would become the word magician. And so I think that's probably part of why uh, you'll see some of those other traditions kind of opt for using that word, whereas uh, like generally paganism and Wicca will opt against it. Um, and there's also another word that gets kind of uh, changed a little bit. I Sometimes you will see this where the word magic is spelled with a K. So either M-I or M-A-G-I. CK or just GIK. Um, so they say like magic with a K if you're saying it out loud or, you know, uh, it's, it's intended to distinguish in written form the difference between stage magic and religious practice magic. And so uh, you'll see that from time to time. Um, I know if you're not aware of that and its purpose of putting that K in there, it can be a little bit strange because you'd be like, wow, how much can these people possibly know if they don't even know how to spell the word magic? Um, it, it, it's, it's done on purpose in order to distinguish the two. So I can, I can see both sides of the magician argument. Um, I can see that it's a, it is traditionally used in some communities, but then it also has this connotation problem. And it is kind of similar to using magic with a K. Um, another option is an occultist. You know, that's a word that a lot of people use. That's another word. It's a very broad umbrella term, just like practitioner. The difference between practitioner and occultist is the word occultist sounds a lot spookier and people know what you're talking about when you say an occultist. So if you say, oh yeah, I met up with Dave and uh, turns out he's a practitioner. Um, some people are going to be kind of clued in. Some people are going to be able to figure it out and some people are going to be kind of left in the dark. If you say, oh, yeah, I met up with Dave. Turns out he's an occultist. The whole room will stop and look at you and go, did he just say the occult? My God. <gasps> there's there's going <laughs> to be a little bit of that reaction, you know, depending on who you're surrounded by, I guess. But uh, so that might be kind of a term that um, I personally really like the term occultist because it uh, it encapsulates such a wide variety of magical practice. Um, but doesn't steer away from the fact that it is magical practice so myself I, I probably refer to myself as actually really i sometimes will refer to myself as a practitioner sometimes an occultist and sometimes a magician uh it just depends there's obviously a lot more options specific traditions might have specific terms and phrases you also might find that specific groups might have rankings you know if you're in like some form of an initiatory system and maybe um, you're in your first couple years of something, you might find that you hold the rank of, let's use uh, the AA as an example, the Golden Dawn as an example, you might have like the rank of 
like zealotor or the rank of probationer or those kind of things. And you might refer to that that practitioner as you know a zealotor or a practitioner. You know, so there's there's options, uh, a lot of different options of how people identify themselves when it comes to an individual who practices magic. Um, an obvious one is someone might just refer to themselves as the religion. So an individual who uh, is uh, like myself, I'm a Thelemite. I would probably sometimes just call myself a Thelemite and it's easy to do that. Just like a Christian might call themselves a Christian or, you know, um, uh, someone who practices Islam might pr refer to themselves as a Muslim or, you know, there's, there's, people referring to themselves as their religion or as a member of their religion is pretty common in everywhere across the spectrum. The magical traditions are no different. So you might have someone who's like, oh, I'm a Wiccan or I'm a Thelemite or, you know, whatever the thing is. Um, those tend to be the examples that I use a lot, but obviously there's a large plethora of different things. And that kind of goes back to that idea of like, I'm an, uh, an alchemist, you know, that could be, you know, uh, a specific type of religious tradition. Um, so that's, that's kind of a breakdown of the individuals. Obviously, we could keep going on this forever. There's a lot of different types of people out there in the world, and many of them identify themselves in different kinds of ways. So, you know, deal with it. Um, groups of people also often have some type of um, name for their group. Common one in magical circles is a coven. It's the concept of like a witch's coven. There are some really, really strict covens that are like, we are not going to have... The, a number of people we're going to allow into this group is going to be a magical number. And we're going to try to balance that magical number at all times. So like your magical numbers are like three, six, nine. Where if we, you know, had three people to start the coven, when we decide to add a fourth person, we're actually going to go find two other people to add and try to make it three people and then six people and then nine people. You know, some are very strict on that kind of a concept. And we're never going to have more than 13 people or, you know, those kind of things. So they might, you know, uh, but some covens might be like the total opposite. They're just like, hey, you know, we're just like a loose group of people that, you know, we might have our whole magic and initiation thing and, you know, consider ourselves members of like a larger community. Um, but, um, you know, maybe we're not as strict about some of how we go about it. Both of those things are very valid. You know, and I can understand why some individuals like to go one route, some would like to go the other, and some would like to go both, and that's okay too. I would say that the general rule of thumb when it comes to being a member of more than one group, especially if they involve initiatory groups, is that if you're in one group and you have initiated into it, and then you go to a second group and you initiate into that second group, don't talk about the first group's initiatory stuff. Uh, they're not members of that group. So... Uh, you know, you've taken an oath during an initiation in order to protect certain secrets and ideas, and you should protect those secrets and ideas, uphold yourself to that standard. I strongly encourage individuals. It definitely affects their life to uh, act in that way. It's a, it's a positive benefit to you to uphold your oaths. And so if you're in two covens, you know, uh, keep the secrets of both of those covens from the other coven. It's Unless you have, like, one single member that's in both, and maybe you can talk about... Uh, that around that one single member, but, you know, show some respect for that. Um, I would say the same thing about like fraternities and, um, you know, magical orders and those kind of things. If you're like, let's say you're a Mason or whatever, that's more of a fraternity, not so much in the occult. Um, but 
you know, they, they, they still have like an initiation ceremony and they have a group of guys that have something that they don't talk about publicly and openly. So I'll use that as an example, but it's not uh, generally considered to be occult in nature or magical in nature. Um, so let's say you take one of those groups um, and then you also get initiated into, I don't know, another one of those types of fraternities like the Shriners is one. There you go. That's a good example. So if you initiated into the Shriners and the Freemasons, don't talk about Freemason shit to the Shriners. Don't talk about Shriner shit to the Freemasons. You know, have some fucking respect about the dividing line there. And uh, if somebody else is a member of both, you know, you could probably speak openly to that one person when you guys are in private. Um, if the conversation is going to cover both topics, maybe, you know, make sure that the only people that are around are, you know, initiated into both those topics. So, um, we talked about the definition of a coven as kind of like a, a collection of uh, witches or uh, pagans. Sometimes might refer to themselves as a coven. Um, you also have just kind of informal groups where people just might refer to the, the group as a group. You know, oh, it's this magic group that I get together with on Wednesday. Just like you might say like a church group. You know, oh, yeah, this is a church group we get together on Friday nights or whatever. Similar concept. Um you might also have, as we just touched on a little bit, the concept of a fraternal, fraternity or an order or a magical order. These are going to be large organizations uh, that might also have an initiatory structure. Um, some examples might be like the AA, uh, the OTO, um, it might be the Golden Dawn, or like the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn, the Rosicrucians. Um, there's... Yeah, there's a lot of different options when it comes to these kinds of things. There's also offshoots throughout history. Some of these orders have fractured, split into other ones. The thing that kind of separates these from a coven is it's going to exist kind of on a, a larger spectrum, kind of the way that a church might, where, um, you know, a coven is kind of more like a small church that just exists in one location in your town. You know, it's going to be like a small group of people that have kind of thrown this together. Whereas like you might have like a large church that has an overarching community that's more global or more national. The way that like maybe the Mormons or the Catholic church would have like more than one physical location and an organizational structure to keep, you know, everybody as a cohesive group. Um, Mormons are a good example that I know pretty well because my parents were Mormon. And so I was raised into some of that when I was younger before, until I left and decided to kind of do my own thing. And um, so there are, in their case, they have like your ward. You have like your group of people that you're meeting with. Then you might have like the church itself, which is the building that they use to host multiple wards. So, you know, in order to have that one building suffice one ward might come at one o'clock in the afternoon one might come at three o'clock in the afternoon or, or whatever in order to just kind of like get more people in and out utilize that space to its to its fullest um uh, and then they have like what's called stakes where they have like multiple wards or members of one larger group and they all kind of you know bring their issues and ideas to the to the table uh and then they might you know have even farther structures built on top of that. Um, I wouldn't say that many fraternal orders have quite that many people in order to 
need to manage those kinds of things. But I would say that it's a similar difference, a church to like an, a large scale church, like a single living room Bible study church versus a large scale organizational church. Uh, it's a pretty similar analogy. A coven is probably a couple of people, um, smaller group that have been, uh, you know, working together as kind of a magical family. Um, a fraternal order is probably an overarching thing that exists in many different states, many different countries, um, in the case of the larger ones, of course, um, that uh, might have different bodies of the order. And that's probably an important word to talk about, too, is like when you talk about like a fraternal body, you might be talking about that one particular lodge. So you might have like, oh, okay, you know, they're all technically members of the OTO, but that one particular body is located in that one specific town, and here are the members of that body. So uh, similar to how there might be like an organizational structure. Fraternities also tend to be kind of passed down in a different way, where fraternal orders... Hmm, it's difficult to really get too much into it. Um, generally speaking, both covens and fraternities can be initiatory, meaning that you take an initiation in order to be a member of the group. Much of the work in fraternal situations is often the initiations themselves, uh, where... And, and not to say that there's not also a whole bunch of people that are, you know, all interested in the same topics as you. And so you find yourself getting to do some of that other work. Uh, but a lot of it is focused around, you know, that. Whereas a lot of times covens, the initiatory work is, you know, meant to bring you into the group. And then you might do some learning both inside and outside of that official um, system. A little more informal a lot of times in covens. And there's nothing wrong with that. It goes back to that idea that, like, you know, there's no perfect way to do this. You need to find what works well for you. And hopefully in doing that, you find that you are able to respect those who do things a little bit differently than you, you know. Um, so it gives you kind of an idea of some of the terms and ideas behind groups, some covens, fraternities, orders, bodies, maybe just a group, you know, those kind of things. So, all right, so that's a whole lot. Let's take a big, deep breath. <gasps> oh, that was drowning in information, I feel like. But, um, all right, so what is the actual magical practice? So that's what the practitioner or the groups they might find or what the term magic practice versus religious and spiritual practice, what does all those mean? We got that. So what does that mean? What are the things that you do? One thing that you might find yourself doing is a regular daily maintenance of some kind of cleansing yourself, cleansing your space, empowering yourself. Maybe that includes something like an altar, and we'll get into that in a minute. Maybe that includes something more like every day as the sun rises, you, I don't know, let's say you're super into the Egyptian vibe, and so maybe every day you pray to Ra as the sun rises, um, and that is empowering and cleansing your, your space. Maybe uh, maybe you find yourself as somebody who regularly like burns incense or burns sage or something like that in order to, you know, bring yourself into some kind of a, an awareness, some kind of a, a spiritual awareness, right? Um, 
It can be a whole bunch of different things that people are doing. We're going to try to cover some of them, but obviously don't expect this to be an exhaustive list. This is just some ideas that came to mind, some of the ways you might go about it. So um, keeping an altar, as we just said, fantastic system for both enacting change within your life, but also for inviting the divine into your life. Because most of what creating an altar is, is to create some space of sanctity within your physical space. Now, some people are living in scenarios where they can't have a permanent full-time altar all the time. Maybe they don't have a large enough home. Maybe they live with some roommates or maybe they live with their parents and there's some you know disapproval going around maybe there's some of that kind of thing uh, they don't have some of the same privacy that uh, some others might have maybe there's financial constraints that are stopping individuals from you know from doing that um, i would say that the financial is probably the least of your concern because magic altars can be set up so cheaply and very much from your environment there have been times where, for example, my friend and I spent five days in the wilderness and we didn't bring anything with us. We had, you know, our regular camping stuff. We had like our, our food and our water and our tents and our sleeping bags, those kind of things. But at some point we decided to do a working and I won't get too much into the inspiration for that or what the working itself was, doesn't really matter. But he was like, what are you going to do? Are you going to do like a whole altar thing? Are you going to do it? And I was like, man, I hadn't even thought about doing like a whole altar thing. I suppose we really could though. And so we did. We hiked around for an hour. We found a natural uh, table-like object in, in nature. In this case, it, it was a, a set of stones and one of them was very flat and perfectly at waist level the way that you would expect an altar to be. And so we just used this natural altar within the environment. And... Uh, the items that needed to go on the altar we crafted so you know um we had taken some some saps and resins and made our own candles had a representation of fire we had you know gone down to the river and collected some water we had um you know figured out we literally made our own incense out there um so that we had a representation of air and then we you know had a representation of earth and we had offerings and we had a depiction of you know a deity and like a full size complete altar complete with magical symbolisms and even whittled out some some little things for the uh so the things that you're not just going to find lying around on the ground in the woods um so there was like some symbols that were incorporated into it that we carved sitting around a campfire so um my point is money is probably not as much of a constraint as you might think it might not be exactly what you're picturing but you could probably have zero dollars be in the wilderness and find everything that you need in order to do a full altar i have done it myself you can do it it worked very well actually and it because i had put all of that time and energy into it it was actually especially effective so uh, you might be surprised uh, but maybe you live with a roommate maybe they're super judgy Maybe you're just not out of the broom closet yet. Maybe you're not ready to talk to other people about it. You know, that's okay too. And so, uh, you know, there might be some reason why you don't have a full size one out all the time. And that's okay. Whatever you're going to do for your practice, I would say 
it's better for you to do your own practice than for you to do my practice because you're going to get more out of that anyway, right? And this is definitely going to fall into that. So uh, you might find that maybe you just have like a little, I don't know, like a little suitcase or a little box or something that you have all the items in and you can stuff it underneath the bed or in a drawer or whatever. And then when it's time to use it, you can pull it out. Maybe you can clean the top of your dresser off or, you know, maybe you could use the box itself as the top of the table, the altar, and you can take the items out and, you know, place them and sanctify the space and bring yourself into a spiritual awareness and have an altar, right? Uh, some of us have, many of us, have full-size dedicated altars that are available at all times. So, um, like a permanent altar structure within our home. An altar is basically a table. It has some things on it that are magical tools. We sanctify the space and we maintain that space as a symbolic place of inviting the divine into our life honoring that divine, maybe doing some magical workings in order to enact change in our lives. A lot of things that you could end up doing with that. Um, one of the things that can become part of a daily practice, instead of just maintaining that altar, one of the things that can become a daily practice is cleaning the altar, maintaining the altar from a cleanliness standpoint. There are a couple different perceptions on this. Some people like to uh, take each one of their workings and if they like spill something, they'll just rub it into the tablecloth and, you know, that's okay. If that's, you know, you're just adding like more magical charge to all the things, I totally get it. That is one perspective. The other perspective is that this, you're trying to make some place of sacredness within your home and part of sanctity is the re material respect that you offer it. And so maybe, uh, maybe you take the op opposite, the flip side, and you say, I'm going to, every time something spills, I'm going to clean. Every time something is, you know, that's that's valid too. It just depends on how you're going to go about it. That's up to you. But that could be part of your practice is maintaining an altar, creating an altar, using an altar in your workings. That could be a pretty big part of it. Another part of it might be like spell work. You know, maybe there's like specific rituals or rites that you either found written down or maybe you wrote yourself. Um you might use or not use that table as part of that. That's all fine. But um, having a regular place in your home for those kinds of activities can be an empowering experience for sure. Even if it's just because you'll walk past it every once in a while and think, hey, all right, you know, I haven't done a lot of that. Maybe I just slow down a little bit today and pay attention to the things that really matter. You know, that could be part of it. Um, or, you know, it could obviously go a lot more in-depth. So those might be some things that you might consider as a spiritual practice. Another might be offerings to deities. Maybe every day, let's see, I'll use myself as an example. I have a uh, statue slash bowl slash incense holder thing that I have made that is, uh, uh, it's a Hindu deity, uh, Hayagriva, which is, uh, he's uh, like a white horse god person. Uh, he's one of the aspects of Vishnu and he, uh, he represents like knowledge and, you know, and so every day I say every day, I try to do it every day, but I'm a human being. Sometimes I fail at doing that every day. Uh, I'll place an incense that is in line with some of the sense of his culture and some of the smells of, you know, um, and, uh, I'll light that and I'll say a specific 
you know, prayer phrase as that offering. Um, I would say offerings to deities in general can be a potential if you're so inclined to do that. Some individuals are much more interested in the other side of magic that is not devotional to a specific deity, and some are interested in kind of flopping back and forth between the two and kind of getting a full perspective of it, and some are very interested in only devotional work. It's all valid, you know, whatever you're going to be doing. That's that's your business, not mine. But it is an option to be doing offerings to deities, offerings to gods, offerings to uh, spirits, like great spirits, maybe like, um, um, I don't know, like the Greeks had several different anthropomorphized concepts that were, you know, available as options. Many religions did, but the Greeks is the one that comes to mind. And you would probably try to match whatever your offering is. Maybe you're offering food, maybe you're offering drink, maybe you're offering, I don't know, like in voodoo a lot of times, obviously not with every entity, but a lot of them uh, like tobacco, so that maybe maybe you might offer like some kind of a, you know, offering like tobacco or something like that. There's a lot of different options of what you might do. And I would just say the more that you learn about the deity, the more obvious the uh, appropriate offerings would be. If, for example, a deity is a vegetarian and you're offering it ham, it's probably not, uh, you know, maybe the first time that deity, depending on its temperament, <laughs> might uh, look down on you and be like, well... At least you're trying. <laughs> I appreciate that you're making an effort. But then, you know, after you've been doing that for six years, and they're like, um, bud, I'm a vegetarian. What are you doing? And then maybe maybe you've put so little work into it after so many years that it's actually kind of offensive that you didn't know that, you know? So that might be something to keep in mind, you know? Match some of those symbols to appropriateness. Um, one example for that might be like Dionysus, for example. Uh, or Bacchus, the Greek or Roman deity for uh, wine and drunkenness and debauchery and, you know, that, that powerful force that is when the party gets out of control. Everything's out of hand, you know. Um, that deity probably would love a glass of nice wine as an offering. That would make sense to, uh, you know, regularly offer wine to Dionysus if you're trying to bring that aspect into your life um that would make sense however also greek also roman down that same route uh sophrazine or the roman equivalent and when i say this roman equivalent it's going to be very obvious why this would not be inappropriate the the, the roman name is sobrietus <laughs> that's where we get the word sobriety uh probably not appropriate to offer a god of sobriety a uh, a wine you know maybe that would be offensive because it would not follow in with the symbols there's there's also the option of like matching the effect to the um the offering so if i was offering like i don't know let's say let's say the deity is like i don't know um some love god let's say and i'm trying to like bring love into my life Let's say I'm trying to bring love into my life in an ethical way, because there's unethical ways to bring love into your life as well as ethical ways. I would not focus on a single individual and say, so-and-so should fall in love with me. I think that's ethically inappropriate, just like it would be inappropriate to, you know, slip a drug into the drink or something like that. I think it would be, you know, 
uh, violating their free will. But if I were to say, man, I really could use some love in my life. I don't have anyone specific in mind. I'm ready to open myself up to the potential of dating again. And I am going to do a ritual in order to invite that energy uh, into my life. And, you know, that would be a much more appropriate way to go about it. Um, and maybe I pick some specific deity. Maybe it's one that I've already worked with a lot, or maybe it's one I haven't worked with. But they're kind of associated with love and matchmaking and those kind of things, you know? Maybe I don't have a specific symbol work, but I think to myself, you know, in my culture, roses, red roses specifically, are symbols of love. It would make sense that my offering match the intended effect. So that's also an option. Um, so those might be some examples of, you know, offerings and deities and working with that deity. And maybe that involves prayer on a regular basis. Maybe it involves reading a poem every day at noon because the sun is at its highest point and it's a sun god or whatever. It doesn't matter. Some kind of offering to a deity. Uh, another aspect of spiritual practices that are within the magical traditions, magical practice might be like astrology. Um, or uh, Astrology is kind of a, an interesting one. I think that astrology, if you're just going, I'm a Pisces, and then you're just stopping there. There's probably not a lot of depth to it. It's probably not, you know, if you're just skimming the surface of astrology, it's probably not even positive. It's probably just distracting you from more in-depth information and more. Uh, a lot of times, individuals who do that will find themselves using the small bits of astrology that they know in order to justify certain behaviors. So they might say, like, well, I'm a Scorpio. I'm allowed to act like this. It's who I am. And they might never work on those behaviors, those toxic behaviors that they have, right? Same with any horoscopal sign, you know? Uh, all of them have upsides and downsides. And uh, if you justify your downsides from this small bit of information that you know, you might not find the spiritual growth and the depth that uh, is there. However... If you take the time to go get like a natal chart written up, natal chart just means like a birth chart. It's like what were the sky, what was the sky looking like at the moment of your birth from your specific geological location. Geological? Geographical location, sorry. Geographical location. Um, so like for example, if I was born on the west coast versus the east coast, the sky would look completely differently uh, depending on what time of day I was born. Also would look differently. And the speed at which the sun rotates, the sky rotates around the earth. Really, it's the earth rotating. The sky look is staying stationary, but you get the idea. You get what I'm saying. From the earth, it looks like the sky is rotating. Um, there, are, there are changes in the sky within minutes that are observable mathematically. Within like three minutes, an object will move a degree. And if it was really close to the edge between two... Uh, two areas of the sky. Let's say this sky, part of the sky is divided and then there's a line here and this other side is this other category. That might be enough time for one particular planet or star to move from one section of your chart to another section of your chart. So you want to be very, very accurate with what time was I born. Go look at your birth certificate and it'll give you a time of birth. And then I would generally suggest like minusing out three minutes. Um, nobody says, so I, I have been in the room for a birth. Um, my, I, I have, I have children 
and uh, I was there with their mother when they were born. Um, it's a powerful experience. Nobody prepares you for it, <laughs> and that's kind of some of the fun. <laughs> um, but the doctor does not say time of birth is, uh, oh, what time is it? Oh, yeah, let's say it's 3 o'clock. Time of birth is 3 o'clock, exactly when the child comes out. They pull the child out. They make sure that he's breathing. They make sure that he has a clear airway. They wipe him down a little bit. They look over. They say time of birth. Because it's like a, it's kind of an after effect. It's not really that important to them that it's like an exact time of birth. They just want to know, okay, child's okay. We've done everything that we can as a doctor in order to encourage this individual's life. They're healthy. They're happy. Maybe, maybe the kid gets all the way to the arms of the mother before they even bother saying, okay, now I have a second. I can look at the time, right? So I would take your birth chart, minus out three minutes. And uh, if you're a parent, I would, and you're about to, or let's say you're about to be a new parent, or you already are a parent, but you're about to welcome a new child into the world, I and you're of the magical tradition, I would look at your phone. <laughs> if you're dad, I guess, I wouldn't expect mom to do this, you know, because she's doing a lot more work in that room than I am. But if you have an opportunity... And you notice the kid pops out, and maybe you're magically inclined, so you want to know the exact minute. Pull your phone out, take a look really quick, put it back, re-engage with the experience that is, so that you can have a little bit more exact, so your child can be a little bit more exact with their natal charts. It's very positive to be able to look at that. So basically what a chart is, is it says where, you know, where all the observable objects are. That's the important one. So the sun, the moon, um, maybe a couple specific um, objects like the, I don't know, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Mercury, Venus, probably not going out past Saturn, usually, for most natal charts at least, when you're doing it like the more traditional route, because you can't see past Saturn with the naked eye. Uh, everything past Saturn wasn't discovered until we had telescopes. So like a lot of astrology is based around the physical objects that can be seen in the sky and tracking their movements. You'll find that if you dive into the specific minute of your birth and all of the information, what, what category was this in? What category was that in? These planets make a right angle with each other, so there's, you know, there's some correspondence there. You really break down the specifics. You'll find it eerily accurate. If you only go the sun was in this particular category, therefore he's a Pisces. And you stop there. There's not a lot of value to astrology, and often it's used in a toxic way in order to justify behaviors. Um, so I would, I would strongly suggest, number one, not being a slave to astrology ever. Always improve yourself. But it can be a powerful tool in order to identify certain aspects of yourself. And I have found that... Um, I had, a, for example, I had a college professor, one of the more practical men I've ever met in my life, very, very on the scientific route, very not interested in the occult. And one time we were talking and he mentioned astrology. And I was kind of taken aback by that. Generally, I don't out myself in public as being an occultist. It depends on the scenario. If it's a professional environment, I generally don't talk about it. If it's a, because, you know, people are shitty. It's not that I'm afraid of it. It's that people are shitty. <laughs> and uh, so at school, I wasn't out. So he didn't know that I was actually pretty educated on astrology. 
Uh, and he was like, yeah, I had this astrologer friend and she, I told her my time of birth and I told her, you know, she knew my personality and she wrote up a natal chart for me and she said, that's not when you were born. And I said, what do you mean it's not when I was born? Yes, it is. I was born at this time. And she said, no, you were born three and a half hours earlier. Go call your mom. And he called his mom and he goes, mom, when was I born? I thought I was born at this. And she goes, no, you weren't born at that. You were born at this other time, three and a half hours earlier. And the reason that the astrologer was able to do that is because, number one, she knew the personality traits of the individual. Number two, she looked at it and she said, this doesn't match his personality. But if you clocked this back a couple hours, it would match his personality really severely. Have him call his fucking mom. And it turned out that the astrologer was correct. And so that was like an experience where he was like, wow, that's really cool. There's definitely something to this. And he, to this day, is not an astrology nut. He is definitely not someone who's like really deep in it. He's also not an occultist. He's, uh, if I remember correctly, he's a Christian. He's either Christian or an atheist. And I, he kind of rides that line where it's difficult for me to tell sometime. Um, fantastic man. Uh, and uh, that was his personal experience with astrology. So um, I think that there can definitely be something about understanding a lot of these different symbols um, that can add interest to your life and astrology would be one of them um, you might even look at every day and say huh I've noticed that today is I don't know whatever day it is it's Taurus and the moon is in Gemini and you know it's Friday so there's this planetary energy for Friday and you know you could go through and like break it down and maybe get a little bit of an idea of some things to pay attention to for the day in order to grow the most. So that would be an example of how that might be used as an actual practice instead of just a chart that sits in your books. Um, another option for spiritual practice would be celebrating holidays. Every culture has its holidays. Just like Christians have their Christian holidays and Jews have their Jewish holidays and Muslims have their... Uh, yeah, Muslims have their Islamic holidays and they all, you know, like there's like, you know, there's Ramadan and there's Lent and there's uh, Christmas and there's, you know, uh, Hanukkah. And there's, you know, there's all these religious holidays that are out there that exist traditionally for each culture, all of them. I don't know why people first getting into the occult are surprised to find out that we have some too. It's a religion that's as valid as any other religion. And... Um, yeah, so Wicca has its own uh, set of holidays. They call it the Wheel of the Year. Their holidays are generally um, set up around specific instances in the natural cycle of the seasons. So they will have one for the longest day of the year and one for the shortest day of the year and the you know one for the day where it's equal uh, sunlight and daylight or sunlight and nighttime and the other day that's equal so in the other season. And so all those types of events. There's, there's generally about, there, there's eight traditionally accepted ones, and then there are some other ones that get thrown around and are interesting and fun and people enjoy them. Um, some examples would be like Imbolc or Beltane or Yule or, you know, things like that. Beltane's a common one. I like Beltane as an example. Um, Beltane has... Um, an imagery that people are used to seeing in a way that doesn't offend them. <laughs> so when you're trying to explain this holiday concept to people, 
Beltane is a fantastic example because uh, they have the maypole where it's like this big pole that they stick in the ground in the bit of, big of an open field and they have some ribbons tied to the top of it and everybody grabs a ribbon and they kind of do this special dance where you hold on to your ribbon and you kind of like weave in between somebody who's going the other direction and it wraps a weave down the, the pole. That's that's the maypole, that's Beltane. There are some other Beltane traditions as well, you know, that have to do with like that night, you know, and um, there's many, many different... Um, Thelema is another example of a religion that has its own days. They, we have what's called feast days, and uh, they have like three three day feast for the writing of the Book of the Law, uh, which is their or our spiritual text. Um, they have like a feast for the supreme ritual to commemorate the foundation of Thelema. So there's like a specific historical event that has to do with uh, the origin stories of the religion, and that day gets commemorated similar to how like easter might be like hey you know uh a christian might interpret easter as being a um celebration of one of their old stories we have some feast days that are celebrations of some of ours um so every culture is going to have its own holidays and you'll also find that like small groups you know, little covens might celebrate, um, you know, all sorts of stuff. Maybe maybe a uh, coming out party for somebody who, you know, expresses their sexuality. Or maybe, uh, I don't know, a puberty party. Maybe like somebody has, you know, entered their adulthood and they do like some kind of a get together for that. Or maybe they have like, um, I don't know, birthdays and, you know, all the things. So... Celebrating as a group, celebrating holidays can be a major part of a religious practice and then specific magical practice. Um, daily ritual is a very important aspect of individual practice. And a, a lot of the, yeah, a lot of the last leftover stuff in this list is going to be individual practice. There's one more, I guess there's one more item that's about group group rights and so i'll do that one right now I'll, I'll skip doing daily ritual we'll go to group rituals there are group rituals of the times and rituals of different elements and there are the rights of you know different things so like for example some of those religious holidays might include or you know maybe it's something not religious holiday included maybe it's just a right that you do as a group it might include like a group ritual that um for example the changing of the seasons there might be like a symbolic you know, this character comes and slays this character. Now the summer has started because he symbolized the summer or those kind of things. You know, you might have like some kind of a, a group ritual done that way. Maybe a group ritual that's just because, you know, everyone's hit a slump and they wanted to get together and do something. And so they decided to celebrate some aspect of humanity and spirituality in their lives. And uh, so they got everybody together and they invoked, I don't know, man, if you really want to celebrate, you invoke Pan and uh, everybody comes together and just has an awesome time together and uh, just all go about your days after the party's over, you know? So there's like all sorts of options. Um, basically, any kind of group ritual would be like you have a whole group of people comes together and does something. One example would be the Rites of Ulysses. The Rites of Ulysses are Thelemic, written by Alistair Crowley um, when they were trying to stir up attention towards the creation of this new fraternal order 
uh, called the AA. They um, they wrote. They're almost like plays. They 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 operate kind of like a play where they would have individuals perform the symbolic interaction of energies via characters within a play. And so one of them might be there's there's different planetary ones. So like one of them might be like I don't know the the right of Jupiter and the different individual characters within the play might be Jupiter-esque things. You know, one might represent uh, one thing, one might represent some other thing. Maybe planets or horoscopes or those kind of things. And um, the the rite itself is a celebration of those types of energies and is a magical working on its own, but it is kind of also a performance art, something to be shared with other people and to have observers come and get, you know, to peer into this kind of a world. So that might be an example of like a group right. Okay, so we talked about the group rights, celebrations, holidays, rights ulysses. Let's talk about what is an individual doing. The answer to that is I have no fucking idea what the individuals are doing. Uh, it's really up to them. There are some great options. I have some things that have been very successful for me that I would suggest. But at the end of the day, your practice is up to you. And it's not my place to tell you how to practice your spirituality. I would be a total asshole if I was going to do that. Um, I can tell you what's been working for me. And I can say, I know some other people that do similar stuff. And it, it works for, for them. Um, this is the best part in this entire episode that falls into that category of, this is not an exhaustive list. <laughs> There's no way that I could ever it would be pretentious of me to answer that question for others so my daily magical practice might be something like uh, daily ritual uh, waking up doing what's called Libra Resh Resh is a solar adoration it happens four times throughout the day now this one's really interesting with how much it plays into this concept of religious practice. The very beginning of the episode we went over a definition the definition said religious practice means a term including practices and observances such as attending worship services, wearing religious garbs, praying at prescribed times. That was like the third thing that they listed. The Resh is a similar concept. There's a solar adoration that happens first thing in the morning as the sun is rising, noonday as the sun is at the top of the, the highest point, as the sun sets, and then at the midnight hour as the sun is the farthest it will be from giving light. So, um, there are prescribed times of the day. There's a specific prayer that goes along with it. And there is another episode where we talk a little bit more in depth about Resh and Thelemic practices. So if you're interested in that, look up the Thelem episode. It will be released soon. It has already been recorded. And um, it, uh, it definitely goes into some of these ideas. But that might be an example of like a daily practice, something every single morning hailing the sun that would be a good example um there's definitely something to be said about you know hailing any kind of a natural cycle any kind of a natural energy that's out there uh being something that can kind of plug you into that spiritual experience there's a reason why when people get to the very very top of some hiking trail they stop they look back at the beauty that is nature and they go yeah that's it you know there's something to it 
And so I would say plugging yourself into some kind of a natural cycle through some form of a regular adoration could be positive. Even if you choose not to do Resh, or even maybe if Resh is just an example for you. Maybe you just go look at Resh and you say, hey, uh, I don't want to do a solar thing. I want to do a lunar thing. Or I'm not interested in either one of those. I want to do like a seasons thing or whatever, you know. Make it your own. Figure out how you're going to adapt it to make more sense to you. Maybe you don't have interest in uh, Resh because it's Egyptian-themed. And, you know, saying hail into the Horde Ra doesn't, you know, vibe with you. But maybe you're into the Greek stuff and you want to say hail into the Horde Helios, you know. Uh, and uh, so make it your own. But um, another daily ritual would be, like, less original, the pentagram. Um, this is a profoundly powerful tool in general. I see it done in every magical circle and in several non-magical circles. It, it's one of those rituals that's been around long enough that it has made its way into a lot of different other things. And sometimes people will adapt it into their own themes. And some people will leave it as it is originally written. And um, it's made its way into a lot of different cultures. But Lesser Ritual the Pentagram is basically a, an elemental rite it's a banishing ritual or an invoking ritual, depending on which way you do it. And uh, basically, you would draw some stars in certain situations and invoke some uh, entities. And um, there's some uh, words of power that get said, some different stances that you might put your body in during. There's like some some poetry that gets read. So you would, um, you know, go through those motions. There's kind of a script to it. You would go through and. Uh, We'll definitely do an entire episode or episodes on uh, Lesser Ritual of Pentagram. And the subsequent other rituals, like Lesser Ritual of Hexagram, Greater Ritual of Pentagram, etc. Uh, definitely some options to look into. So if that's something that you would be excited to learn more about, both the history side and also the technique of how to get, go about doing it, uh, please let me know. Again, Nate at whitewoodpodcast.com. Let me know so that I can see where the interest is in those kind of episodes. Uh those episodes that have more interest um, will do sooner, you know, and that also offers an opportunity to maybe do more episodes of them because as we get responses, as people say, hey, I really liked this episode. Can you go more into this topic? We can maybe even do like a second episode where we go into more depth on something that we missed. So reach out to me. Um, so those are like magical practices. Those are rituals that you would do on a regular basis, you would wake up first thing in the morning, do lesser ritual, uh, lesser ritual, the pentagram, and then you would uh, do resh, and then you would go about your day, and then you'd, you know, it would be time to do resh again. You'd do that, and maybe do like middle pillar exercise, and then maybe you, you know, so you could do like rituals throughout the day. I guess is what I'm getting at. Um, something that is not, hmm, is it a cult in nature? I don't know. Something that is traditionally not considered to be a cult by the majority of people who practice it, but that I would argue is a valuable occult practice, is meditation. Meditation itself is, is not uh, necessarily a cult, but it is powerful, and we use all powerful techniques in the occult, and um, it has spiritual aspects to it. It also has mundane aspects to it, too, and that's really one of the things that makes it such an interesting practice is that, you know, if you're secular, uh, you can totally meditate on a regular basis, get very profound effects, be very empowered in your psychology, and 
uh, be a healthier, more rounded individual because of it, without ever having to open the spiritual door. However, there's also this whole other side to meditation where there is a spiritual door there, and you can open it and invite it in, and it's awesome. And, uh, you know, you see it in traditions like the yogic traditions, Buddhism, Hinduism. A lot of Eastern traditions have a lot of meditation. Meditation is starting to become a little bit more commonplace within the United States, uh, where I live. Uh, even though it's more of a Western side of things, we are starting to see it get incorporated a lot more. And there's various levels to which some meditative techniques might be uh, shared. So there are some people who are doing a very, very spiritual-oriented meditation. Some people are doing a very just mundane, you know, regularly calm the mind in order to relieve stress. All of those things are valid. All of them put you in the driver's seat for uh, your psychology. And the more that you are in the driver's seat for your psychology, the more you are enabled to do magic in general. So if you were to add secular meditation to your daily routine, you would get better at magic. If you were to add the spiritual side of meditation to your techniques, you would get better at magic. Um, doesn't really matter. However you want to do that. Obviously, you don't have to do anything I'm telling you to do. But meditation is a potent, powerful thing. And uh, regular meditation... I would not say it itself is a magical working, but I would say that incorporating it into one's spiritual practice is intensely powerful. Um, and then this one, this last example that I wrote down for spiritual practice, magical practice, is, uh, it's a weird one. It's something that my friend told, I've never done this myself, but my friend told me he did it. And I thought, man, what a great idea. There's this deck of cards that he has, and each one of them has a different religion depicted on it. So there might be like a Christianity card, and there might be an Islam card, and there might be a Hinduism card, and there might be a Chaos Magician card, and there might be a Thelema card, and there might be a Satanism card, and there might be a just any religion at all, all printed in his deck of cards. And for a period of time, before he found really what was working for him, he would just go draw a card, and he would be that for a day. And not just a little bit that. If he drew the Jewish card, he was going to observe specific things like he was going to eat kosher that day, he was going to cover his head, he was going to read you know, their religious texts, he was going to immerse himself as much as possible within that culture, as much as he is capable of doing with his current understanding of that system. And then the next day, he would go and draw a different card. And he would be that other thing for the day. And so if it was like he drew, uh, I don't know, the Muslim card, then he would be praying at specific times pointed towards Mecca and he would be you know abstaining from uh, I think they abstain from alcohol if I remember correctly I could be wrong I don't, I'm not I'm not a I'm not a Muslim so I don't know um, if I'm wrong there let me know but uh, he would whatever dietary things whatever spiritual practices they do whatever types of prayer whatever spiritual text they would read he would just draw a card and be that 100% for the day as much as he is capable and eventually he said it was really great for rounding oneself out and really kind of, you know, experimenting with a lot of different philosophies, ideas, frameworks. It made him the type of person that he wants to be. And um, he said that it, there was a, a positive practice. And I've thought about doing it myself. Um, I have not. But I think that's kind of a cool idea. So I wanted to present it as, you know, an option. If you're just trying to figure out what exists you could buy a formalized deck of a whole bunch of different religions or you could just you know go get a deck of flashcards and just write them down 
You know, you don't have to necessarily go buy anything in order to do this, and you could um, just uh, make your own deck. And so maybe you go online to Wikipedia and you look at a list of all the different religions that exist, and you pick the ones out that you feel like you could do that for, or the ones that you're interested in. Maybe, maybe you are interested in you know balancing it out and having some light and some dark and you know mixing it together. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're only interested in this. You know, maybe these five things, and you want to just kind of like play around with those. So I think the flashcard method kind of helps to. You know, puts you in the driver's seat, lets you figure out. But uh, the drawing of the cards kind of helps take you out of the driver's seat, leave a little bit of up to chance, have something new, fresh, and exciting to happen. So um, leave it up to you how you want to use that information. So, yeah, I think that does a pretty good job at wrapping up the concept of magical practice. And I'll just leave you with this. A magical practice is anything and everything that you do whether that's alone or in a group, in order to practice your spiritual discipline, your spiritual exercises, as they relate to developing your understanding of the magical traditions that exist in the world. That's what a magical practice is. I hope this has been a beneficial episode, and you guys have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Whitewood Podcast. This show is made possible by our Patreon members. You can find us on Twitter at Whitewood Show and on Facebook at Whitewood Podcast. For links to all our social media and information about our Patreon, visit us at whitewoodpodcast.com.